name's Pastor Dave. I'm glad to be with you all. Open your Bible to Matthew 10. That's where we're parked, out, parked today. We're asking why Jesus matters today. Why does he matter to us today in the 21st century in Larimer County here in Loveland? Why does he matter? He matters because he calls us to live lives worthy of his name. A worthy life. That's what he sets before us. Some of us may feel, though, pressure. I wonder if we feel pressure. We just watched, uh, I think it was called Turning Red with our kids, a new Disney movie. A little girl who feels so much pressure. Maybe you felt that. I have a family member who lived her whole life from child to adulthood and now as her mother ages, never having felt affirmed, never being enough, never worthy. Even as she, she's a, She's an earnest Christian, this, this woman. But even as she cares for her mother in her age and goes to visit her and make sure that she's provided for in all the situations that age brings, it's never enough. And she'll knock her down. Have you ever felt that? Unworthy in the home. And how do we live up? How can we be worthy enough? And who are we supposed to be worthy for? Another person that I know We'll call him Daniel. Daniel went to college and he found a new political party affiliation than his parents. His parents were very active, very interested in politics, had a very uh, serious stance. Daniel goes to college. His stance changes. It's different from his parents. His sister, she had a different experience and she actually became even more entrenched in what her parents believed politically, diametrically opposite in some ways. And that tension that he would feel as he comes home. She, the prized daughter, worthy of their love. And he, a black sheep. How can he be worthy of his parents? Another person, we'll call him Jordan, comes from a family of privilege. Generations of a family that had started a a business and had become successful. And had passed on generational wealth. And that was passed through the the son being the leader of the company. But Jordan didn't want that to be his story. He actually turned away from that story and felt a call to world missions. And he chose a life of pretty much poverty (laughs) with the people the Lord called him to. And his parents would say, oh, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it one day. We'll see. But who are we called to live worthily of? And what stops us from attaining something like worthiness, a sense of worthiness? Uh, In the first century, there was all sorts of competing visions of what the worthy life was. Jesus is coming and he's speaking amongst people who have uh, probably very concrete ideas of what they think they should be doing with their life what life should look like, what the good life is. If you were a Pharisee, the good life meant strict adherence to the law as they understood it and as the the teachers of the law taught it. So they would know the Bible, the the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and they would know all the traditions that had been taught about it and the way you should apply it. And they would keep it rigorously. That was the good life. That's the worthy life. And anyone who fell short of that was unworthy. Then you have other sects of Judaism as well. You have the Sadducees. They were more in line with the Greco-Roman philosophy of the day. They would hold to the first five books of Moses and its ethical teaching especially. But 
they would lean into the teaching of the world. They were more cosmopolitan in outlook. You could find parallels with people today and different values that people can have today. The Essenes, they would withdraw from community. They wouldn't be in the rat race with the rest of us. They're out on their own, embracing poverty, a life of asceticism. Asceticism means they live in severe self-control, eating very little, living a very, very uh, regimented lifestyle in community according to their rule of life, waiting for God to come. And if you returned to life in society, that was unworthy. The, the Romans, they have their own vision for, for a worthy life. And it's bound up with civic life. Did you know the word for religion comes from a Roman word, a Latin word? Religio, which means civic duty. So in that sense, for a Roman person, their religion was their political life. It was all bound together because... Caesar, for one, was a god that they were called to worship before. And all of the things that they did civically or religiously were supposed to support the state. So their participation in festivals and temple worship, all of their life, whether they were called into service as a a centurion or, or an underling in the army or anything at all, was supposed to serve the state and that civic religion. And if you turned against the civic religion, you were unworthy. You were an unworthy person. And you can see how there's a sort of self-interest that we can all naturally have. In the, in the 21st century, we, we, we think of uh, just the, the desire for consumer goods, the desire to acquire wealth, the desire for all the comforts that we can get. That kind of self-interest that we know can lead to some level of destruction. But there's also these, these other kinds of, of, of interests, the interests of preserving my family dynamics. Don't mess with the family dynamics. That would come into play. Whether you're a Roman family, whether you're a Pharisee family, if you start to live a different way of life, you might mess with those dynamics. And if you don't preserve that, you think that'll hurt you. If you don't preserve your comfort and privilege, It'll mess up with the family name. It'll mess up your, your, your reputation in society. If you don't preserve the political powers that be and toe the line according to what you've been told you should say and think, it could upset the family, it could upset the community, it could upset the religious community as well. Jesus, though, he isn't asking, what is a worthy life according to your parents? What is a worthy life according to the state? He's saying, what's a worthy life according to God? That's what he's calling you to, to recover a worthy life in the eyes of God. And that's why he matters today. I, I know that this uh, may, may sound heavy upon you. And perhaps because of the heaviness of others that have put expectations upon you, you might say, well, why should I care about why, what Jesus says is worthy? If, you've, if you haven't had a chance to read the first chapters of Matthew, we're, we're in chapter 10, which is an important turn in, in, in the book. I invite you to go back, spend some time. It won't take you that long to read through and see Jesus as he's revealed here. He's revealed as one who's authoritative, who speaks sane words of truth. He shows us a good life. You should read the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five through seven. He's, he's proclaiming authoritatively the way life should be. And it's beautiful. And then he demonstrates his authority in chapters eight and nine. 
He demonstrates that he has the authority to speak the way he does. He doesn't have to refer to the rabbis, to the scribes, or to Rome. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And then he shows it when he can cleanse lepers, when he can cause the sick to be healed with a word, when he can even cause the dead to rise. This man has authority. Look to him. (laughs) He's revealed as the son of God, even God with us. But even if you believe that today, there's another step that this passage will cause us to take that's difficult for Christians, particularly Christians that live in the West and in the comforts of Larimer County in 2021, because he's going to call us to a worthy life. And it is a hard life. It's a difficult life. Perhaps not always, but certainly sometimes. And many of our neighbors around the world know this very truly. As Jesus unpacks the worthy life in this passage, we're going to see that it will be hard. Are we willing to follow him? Do we see him as worthy to follow? With all those questions in our mind, let's pause and pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, please open your word to us by your spirit and lift our eyes to Jesus. Help us to see him. Help us to follow him. Help us to let your word hit home where it needs to hit in all of its comfort and assurance and all of its power and challenge. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The worthy life. This is what Jesus calls us to. The first thing we learn about the worthy life is that it's a life united in Jesus across lines of difference. It's a a life united in Jesus across lines of difference. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He calls to himself his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority. A couple words of comment before we go on. He calls to himself 12. That number is very significant. It's not just an accident that he called to himself 12. Jesus was doing something. All the way back in chapter 1, when I began this, uh, this sermon series, and we started looking at Matthew, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and there you see that Jesus is a descendant of Judah and his brothers. They are mentioned because they are the 12, the original 12 that would become the tribes of Israel. From those 12, Judah and his brothers, would come Israel. And now Jesus is establishing a new people of God. All who look to him in faith. And he's giving them his authority. So Jesus has been proclaiming and then demonstrating his authority, and now he's delegating his authority to these 12 in his name to go and do what he does, to to cast out unclean spirits, to heal every disease and affliction. And the names of the 12 are mentioned, the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, who we'll talk about at Easter time, Matthew, note him, we already learned a bit about Matthew, last chapter, who Jesus called from his tax booth, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, we're introduced to. Keep those two in your mind, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Matthew and Simon are together following Jesus. Think about the realities of that for a moment. 
a zealot in the first century context is a person, another group that I didn't mention earlier, who believed that the worthy life is one that's lived in opposition, active and even violent opposition to any authority other than a Jewish authority in Israel. It's very much like a sort of ethno-nationalist sort of radical group. And they would basically uh, precipitate the downfall of the state of Israel and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And there's a terrible, gruesome story that these radicals, these zealots were rounded up and killed at a place called Masada shortly thereafter. But this is one of those folks, and he's following Jesus. He's one of the 12, along with a tax collector who works for the Roman government. Think about that. There's going to be some tension there, isn't there? Even if Matthew never had anything to do with the Romans again, there would likely be tension. You served the enemy in the eyes of a zealot. I imagine we might have things like this today. Folks who are inclined to parts of the internet, some of those far corners where people read QAnon blogs and postings and predictions and all of those things, and who are inclined toward violent overthrow of our government, and those who voted in our government, who heartily supported the Biden-Harris ticket, and they're here. You're following Jesus together. And it's an honor to be your pastor. And people between fishermen who are like, what do we do with Simon? And what do we do with Matthew? You know? What an honor it is to be in a people united across difference, united in Jesus. Something more true than the lines that we draw. I think this challenge, this worthy life that Jesus is laying out for his people, the descriptor of his people. Remember, Jesus came. Read Ephesians. What is Ephesians about? It's about how the gospel destroys the lines of enmity that we create through our cultures, lines between Jew and Gentile. Jesus, he, he took all of that enmity, enmity into his own body so that he could kill it and turn the two into one man. All of the divisions could be brought together in him. That's his vision. And there's a challenge for us, Faith Church. When we make lines that he does not, we should repent. Okay? You can passionately hold your convictions about socially constructed, uh, you know, modern socialist economics or more, uh, you know, free market capitalism. But... <laughs> I'm going to get off on a rabbit trail. The Bible just doesn't give you the data to make the conclusion about that. That's extra biblical wisdom that you're, you're going to have to discern through God's common grace and through time. But Jesus is calling you across those divisions to follow him. The second aspect of the worthy life, united across difference and also showing and telling the truth. Verse 5, so Jesus sends out the 12, 
He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, he is reestablishing the people of God. So begin there, proclaim as you go though, he says, proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. They're called to proclaim and to heal. They're called to tell and to show. This is the basic pattern of his own ministry, and now it's going to be the pattern of theirs. One of the first things, though, that I want us to uh, think about as we think about their mission and ours today as, as the church, as believers in God today in 2021, looking to Jesus, what does the worthy life look like for us? A common, easy mistake to make is we read the Bible as though it was initially written to us but we forget that it was written in the first century for a first century audience. And so the first thing that we should ask when we read a historical narrative is to say that it was written so that we would know this happened and what did it mean for those original people? And then we'll be in a better footing to say, what does it mean for us? Okay, do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus isn't telling you right now necessarily to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. However, this does have meaning for us. He did tell this to his disciples because they were called to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. And he gave them an incredible portion of his spirit in this moment to show, not just tell, but show the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The question is, what does that mean for us today? Certainly we know proclaiming the gospel is still true. What do we do about all this healing stuff? The first thing that I want to say is the church throughout the ages has been committed to showing the gospel through works of love, sacrificial works of love. Founding of hospitals, founding of universities, caring for communities, caring for the least. So, that's the first thing that needs to be said. But what about all the, the sign gifts that we, we would use the word sign gifts or the phrase sign gifts for those special gifts that the Lord gave his apostles? Are those still around today? Um, in our denomination, of our, our family of churches, we leave this as open-handed. Different churches have different views at times. In my own experience, I've experienced friends who have stories, both from here in the United States and abroad, of God doing amazing things. Healing. And these things can happen. I believe that these reports are credible. He doesn't give them all the time. He doesn't necessarily give them when we ask for them. He's sovereign in the way he gives these as he shows his kingdom through us. Nevertheless, it is our calling as a church, as a whole people of God in the world to tell of the kingdom and to show it. And so Jesus gives some practical instruction. They're going and they're literally going to enter houses and greet their neighbors. Verse 13, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So, a simple pattern for ministry to neighbors Jesus lays out. It's also important to note that Jesus didn't exclude them to only say these things. We don't know. Maybe they had a lot of great conversations. 
That included extending the peace of God and included sharing the kingdom of heaven has arrived. We don't know everything that they said, but those are two key elements that they were going to say in every single house. And those who would receive them, who were worthy. Verse 14, those who would listen to your words. They would come and let their peace come upon them. But those who would not, they would let the peace return to them and they'd shake off the dust from their feet and would leave that house or town. What does that mean for us? This is what the disciples did. What do we do as we follow Jesus? I think of us where we are, guys. One of the low-hanging fruits of the mission of God for the people of God is to love your neighbors. Do you know that? God put you in a place, and it's not by accident that you live where you live. That you have an extra neighbor, if you live in a single family home, who has a door that you could go and knock on it. And you could say, hey, it's me, uh, David. We, we met that one time when I was mowing my lawn and we said hi. You know, I, can we get dinner? No, I just, I just want you to know God's peace and uh, would love to, to have a meal with you. Uh, okay. Or maybe they'll say no. Fine. Shake the dust off, go back home, try the next door. You were put at your address for a reason. What if you went next door and said hello? (laughs) And then over coffee, over dinner, over breakfast, over lunch, you know, whatever it is, over racquetball down at the Chilson, you get to start talking about how the kingdom of heaven has arrived in your life. You don't have to have every answer. One of the fears of people Uh, who follow Jesus is, well, what if I get in a situation and they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to their questions? Jesus doesn't call you to know the answer to all the questions. He just tells you to share and bear witness to what he's done in your life. How has the kingdom of heaven arrived in your life? (laughs) What has it meant for you? How has he freed you from toxic relationships? He's, He's come and brought you freedom from that and shown you a better way. When no one would call you worthy, he would speak a word of truth over you and say, you are a daughter of God. You are a a son of God. You have value and worth, and I love you forever. How how has he showed up in your life? How How has he healed you? Some of us have stories of healing. Inexplicable. And the Lord has done it. Share it. Give the Lord glory. And, and people will receive you and some will not. And that's fine. You trust the Lord. Verse 15, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Some of our neighbors will not like it when we come to them with the gospel. Some are trained to not like it when we come to them with, with any God words at all, even from the most earnest place of our heart. They won't receive it. And if, if you have a friend like that, if you're even here today, if you're listening online, I want you to consider your position in light of what Jesus says here. He says that if you reject him, it'll be worse for you on a, a certain day of judgment that will come in the future. It, it, it will be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are two towns that were destroyed in Genesis 19. 
because they turned away from the Lord and from his ways and were harming their neighbors and those who came to visit them. It'll be worse for you if you reject Jesus. This is sort of like a wager that we make. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher and a theologian in France in the 17th century. And one of the things he's famous for is his wager. He was going all in on Jesus. He put all his chips on Jesus being true, risen, Lord. And he acknowledged, well, yeah, okay, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, but okay, let's say I'm wrong. I'm putting all my chips on Jesus. Well, first of all, if I'm right, not only do I get a life of integrity, a life of meaning, even in the midst of suffering. Not only do I get all that, but I get an eternal life with the Lord who has loved me and gave himself for me. On the converse, if, if, if it turns out I'm wrong, Pascal said, I get a life lived with ethical integrity, <laughs> a life of love and meaning in the midst of suffering. And then it, it doesn't really matter afterward anyway. But for the person on the other side who rejects God, who rejects the message of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is truly Lord and King and judge, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's the wager that you're making, dear neighbor. That's just what Jesus is saying here. So I invite you to consider Jesus, all of us, to be warned and brought home to him. The worthy life is a life showing and telling his truth. Thirdly, it's a life of wisdom. Starting in verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wisdom and integrity. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. This is the calling of Jesus to his followers in the world. First to his 12, then to the whole church and even to us. And he says, beware of men. The word there is just the plural for human beings. Beware of human beings, faith church. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Below he'll speak of children rising up against parents, brother delivering brother over to death. And we see that three spheres in which we live our lives are spheres in which we can experience real opposition to Jesus. He's just telling us to be wise and open-eyed about that reality, not to be naive. In the sphere of your religious community, for the first century followers of Jesus in their synagogues, you will experience opposition at times when people either reject who Jesus truly is, as people did in the first century, or if they have a twisted vision of who he is, and you don't conform to that, but you look to Christ in the scriptures, you will find opposition. You will find opposition from the political sphere, from kings. You'll have to bear witness before them. You'll have opposition in your family. You'll upset the apple cart in the family system. You know, because you don't care any mom, anymore that mom says you're unworthy. I'm going to love you anyway. <laughs> and I'm going to be okay with healthy boundaries. I don't have to answer the phone every time you call because you're not my Lord. You're not my God.
But then when you are delivered up, as can happen in this world, and as does happen in this world, I was speaking with a dear brother about mission to China and folks who have been arrested for proclaiming Christ in China. Today, if you do that, you will likely be arrested. I don't know if you'll even get a trial, but you'll certainly be arrested, imprisoned, perhaps deported and never allowed back in, but possibly just long-term imprisonment where worse could await you. And there are other countries like this as well. But when that happens to you, Jesus says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The Lord encourages you with a wise hope. In that moment, don't be afraid. Don't worry. The Lord will speak through you. He'll be sufficient for you. And, and as a, a quick aside, I just want you to realize, dear American Christians, most of us here today, we've lived in, in relative comfort and prosperity, and particularly in our Christian identities. Those have been unchallenged for the most part for pretty much since the founding, the basics of, of being a Christian. But today, it's... I think it's reasonable to imagine a future in which we're living a more exilic sort of lifestyle in which we are at odds with our government and our neighbors increasingly. You do realize this. Our neighbors are not embracing Jesus increasingly and increasingly are feeling not just sort of uh, ambivalent as was the case with probably my generation growing up increasingly now they feel hostile and are taught to feel hostile toward Christian ideas. And so we'll have to figure out how to be faithful. And this could be us within a generation. It's not unreasonable to imagine, guys. And will we see Jesus as worthy to stand and say, he's my Lord and I love him. How could I deny my Savior who's loved me my whole life and gave himself for me? So we have a worthy life of wisdom, realizing the realities that will come to us if we follow Jesus, that we will be hated by all for the name of Jesus. But we also have incredible promise. It says, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. As I was preparing this week, I was trying to think, is there anything positive that I'm going to have to say this weekend? Like, am I going to be able to dig them out of this hole? You know? Um, but here Jesus is giving us promise. Through the path of suffering comes salvation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This causes many of us, I think, uh, some, some difficulty. Particularly people in the house of God will have questions about endurance and salvation. Um, we have people who, on one hand, who have been instructed that uh, we need to be very careful and very mindful of our heart toward the Lord of our life because we could lose our salvation. And then on the other hand, we have folks who will use a phrase like once saved, always saved, and we can rest secure. And the first thing that I want to do since I'm preaching Matthew 10 is to say what Matthew 10 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is something Jesus has said. It's in the end that we know who has been saved. The one who endures 
or perseveres, the word can be rendered. And so from our vantage point, that's what Jesus is referring to, our human vantage point. It's those who endure in Christ, not those who spring up like in the parable of the soils and the sower, those who spring up for a moment and then are scorched by the sun or or, 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 are choked out by, by thorns or weeds and the cares of the world. It's not those who are ultimately saved, but those who, who bear fruit where the word falls on good soil and grows and endures. At the same time, from God's vantage point, there's an unseen reality that's an incredible comfort, not inspired to help people win debates in college dorm rooms over pizza and the comforts of the 21st century, but given to comfort the church which was suffering in persecution and wondering, where are you, God? Do you have us? Should famine or nakedness or sword take us? Will you have us? He says, I say to you, nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will never cast them out. So from God's vantage point, there's incredible comfort to be found. From our vantage point, we seek earnestly daily to follow the Lord. If you fall off either of those sides, you can either become hyper-anxious, which I don't want for any Lamb of God, or you could become smug and complacent, which I don't want for any Lamb of God. We rest in his promises and seek to follow him. Those who endure to the end will be saved. The worthy life endures in this wisdom. And then the second part of wisdom that Jesus speaks of in this passage is about fear. He says, verse 26, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What you tell in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a uh, a wise caution. Jesus speaks about this in the, in the previous passage. There's a time to run out of the city. He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Having basic concern for your life at times can be wise because you want to continue to do what God's called you to do. And this isn't the hill he called you to die on. At times there's a wise caution. But there's no place in God's people for a sort of crippling fear of man where I will refuse to follow God where he calls me because somebody might bring me up on charges. I might lose my job because the family won't like it because I might die. There's no place for that fear. Perfect love casts out fear, Jesus says. He he took on death for us so that death wouldn't cause us any trouble. And so he says, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body. Fear rather the one who can kill body and soul in hell. The one who we ultimately answer to. There's a wise fear. It's wise to fear the power and the righteousness of God. Because he is the judge. And one day, every one of us would answer to him. And if you haven't taken refuge in Christ there, that will be a fearsome moment. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
but those knees that haven't yet bowed will bow in defeat. Learn a proper fear. Look to Jesus. And don't think, I think this is the most challenging part of the passage here at the end. Do not think, Jesus says in verse 34, that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. Oh, this, this passage is, is, is difficult. I think of this week laying my daughter Eden down to bed at night, reading stories with her, getting to kiss her and pray with her. She is my treasure. I love her. And yet I think about this passage and I think I could have a misplaced love. <laughs> I think of the treasured times I get with Christina to, to talk at the end of the night after the kids are in bed. The, the dates that we don't take often enough because I'm a terrible planner. But those sweet times that we get. And even her, a good gift from God to me, such a good and gracious gift, still not the first thing, a gift, but not the giver who gave it to me so graciously, who's given me all things, life itself, who gave his own son to, to die in my place so that I could know him and have purpose and eternal life. I can miss this. And so I think this is a call for everyone in the room to look to Jesus anew and turn to him and see him and let him prove his worth to you. He, in fact, is your reward. In him, we learn a worthy love. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The ultimate reward in Christ isn't a great job. It isn't a great reputation. It isn't a family that, that all gets along in the here and now, sad as, as those realities can be and how deeply we desire for them to be resolved. The ultimate reward is Christ himself, who is ours. Paul said in Philippians 3, he's another follower of Jesus, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I think of Amanda and I think of her mom and I think of, of those who are living life wondering if they could be worthy. In Jesus, you can be called worthy <laughs> no matter what anyone says. He will love you to the end. He'll free you from those oppressive expectations. Daniel, whose family took sides in a partisan way such that he feels left out. He's looking to the one true king whose kingdom will never end. He doesn't have to ride the cycle of every four years because he looks to Jesus. And Jordan, who's, who's overseas, who's, who doesn't have the kind of insurance and securities of his parents, he has the security of a father who loves him and says, worthy, 
well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I long to hear. That's what I long all of us to hear. And as we follow Jesus, the, the promise of reward is not just a half, uh, a cup half full kind of promise, kind of a, a, a trite positivity. This is earnest, true promise that if, if the Lord is calling us to a place of difficulty, when he calls us through suffering, that's exactly where we want to be. Because when he calls us through the valley of the shadow of death, it's there that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. It's there that he anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. And there that the promise becomes real to us, his goodness and mercy will follow us all our days. We'll be in his house forever. So I invite you to look to Jesus and find him worthy. Oh, and I long and I pray that our lives might reflect him and might be found worthy in the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would call us to a good life, a truly good life, a life that is not what our world says is good. Our world would run from all suffering. But a life where even suffering finds meaning and hope in the promise of Jesus, in his blood and his resurrection. Shape us, Lord, shake us who need to be shook today. You are worthy, Lord. So we praise you. Amen.